Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Today, we're going to zoom in on evictions. In the first half of the show, we talked to attorney Caroline Klosko from the Legal Aid Justice Center. She specializes in representing low-income tenants. And in the second half of the show, we're going to look at the local policy side of things with City Councilor Michael Payne. I'm going to hand things over to our assistant producer, Corey Harris, who conducted both of these interviews. I'm Carrie Klosko. I'm a housing attorney at the Legal Aid Justice Center here in Charlottesville, and I represent the low-income people in our service area. Okay, and tell us about the eviction moratorium. What is it? When did it start? How does it function? Uh, So there are two different levels of protection right now. There is what it's called the CDC moratorium. That's the federal level of protection that applies to all uh, of the states and territories. And then there are the uh, tenant protections that are incorporated into the state budget. So the federal moratorium was first instituted almost a year ago, September 2020. And what it does is it says that A tenant whose income is below a certain level, it's a fairly high level, I believe it's $99,000 per year, cannot be removed from their residence, cannot be evicted for non-payment if they present their landlord with a declaration that's a writing that says certain things like their income level, that they've lost money due to COVID, due to loss of jobs, or due to their hours being cut or um, they've had extraordinary medical expenses, that if they were evicted, they'd have no place to go and would end up um, in a homeless shelter or in shared housing where COVID could spread. And also that they've been doing everything that they can to make partial payments and to apply for assistance. So the tenant has to affirmatively give this to their landlord, which means they have to know about it. So this was instituted in September of last year At one point, it was adopted by Congress during the lame duck session in the Trump administration. But then after that, it was extended by the CDC to the end of July. And just recently, it was extended again. Like they allowed it to lapse for just a few days. And then I think it was on August 3rd. It's been extended for another 60 days. It now applies only in counties where there is, quote, substantial or more COVID transmission. But fortunately or unfortunately right now, that's like practically everywhere. It's everywhere in my service area. It's, it's most counties in the state. So that's the federal moratorium. The state, there's state budget protections as well, which don't prohibit eviction for non-payment. But what they do is they require the landlord essentially to apply for rent relief assistance and to wait a certain amount of time for that Uh, application to be processed before they can proceed. It's 45 days for the initial application, 15 days if they have to have to apply again, they've got to wait for it to be processed. Essentially, that's what it is. This is a question you may not be able to answer, but it just always seemed to me strange that the government would expect families to be able to pay back rent because the moratorium, if I understand, it's just 
essentially a pause, right? It's a pause, yeah. So according to the CDC moratorium, the federal moratorium, it doesn't do anything to the debt that the tenant owes the landlord. But one of the COVID relief packages that was passed dedicated a whole bunch of money for the federal government to distribute to the states. And that's what the rent relief program is about. So taken by itself, the CDC moratorium doesn't address that. But there is this tool, this, this, uh, this rent relief fund that's meant to address it. So do you know how many people in central Virginia are affected by this? And how does this break down demographically? I, I don't know. I don't know the numbers. Anecdotally, I can tell you that in these times and in other times too, even before, before COVID, before we had these protections, I would say three quarters or so of my clients were women of color with children. So, you know, it's not just that they were people of color, not just that they were women, not just like it was all three things, like women of color with children. That's most of the people who, who I represented. What, in a nutshell, are tenants' rights in Virginia? What should someone do immediately if served with eviction papers? So if you're served with eviction papers, okay, first of all, the first thing you should do is if you think you qualify because of your income for free legal services, you should call us. That number is 973-0553. After that, the most important thing you can do is show up to court. So many people lose their housing because they don't show up to court. There will be a court date on your court papers. And if you don't come to court, then default judgment will be entered against you. And as little as 10 days later, the sheriff will show up at your door and make sure that you're out. So you have rights. uh, Come to court. That initial court date is what we call a first return date. And as long as the tenant says, I disagree, I want a trial, nothing happens on that day except a trial gets scheduled. So the tenant has a right to a trial. And at the trial, if the tenant loses, then the landlord can actually put the tenant out until at least 10 days later. So that's basically what we call due process. The tenant has the right to due process, even in the absence of these COVID protections. What laws did Virginia enact to protect tenants from being denied future housing? So it's part of these current budget protections that while the tenant is receiving rent relief, the landlord is not permitted to report their account as delinquent to credit bureaus. And credit bureaus include the tenant screening agencies that landlords access. They're like uh, miniature credit bureaus. So that's positive. Another positive development that's going to become law in January 22 is that there is going to be a provision for the expungement of eviction records but only if the eviction was dismissed, if it was adjudicated in the tenant's uh, favor. So that means that after a certain amount of time, the tenant is going to be able to petition to have that record expunged, much like, like a criminal defendant who's the, it's been adjudicated in their favor can have that record expunged. That's an improvement over the way things were. Like It used to be that people could end up being denied housing 
because they had an eviction that was non-suited by the landlord or that was found in their favor by the judge. Just the fact that the eviction was filed would stay on their credit report for the full seven years and there was nothing that they could do about it and it stopped a lot of people from getting housing. There is still no provision for expunging eviction cases where the judge found against the tenant and that's an unfortunate thing. I sort of led in answering that question with the kind of two good examples that I could think of. I think for the most part, there's a lot of work that that could be done in making sure that people's past doesn't interfere with their ability to get housing in the future. Most housing developments in our area have a policy of keeping out people with certain criminal records, you know, and it can go like several years back as much as uh, 10 years back, even for drug offenses that are nonviolent and that sort of thing. And it's, it's a really unfortunate thing, and people get hurt by it. How often do renters, in your experience, have legal representation at trial, and how does this affect outcomes? I would say that the tenant is represented in well under 1 in 10 of eviction cases. I would say that it's less than 10% of cases. I don't know how much less percent, but I'm very comfortable saying less than 10%. In cases where there is representation, if it's us or it's CVLES, which is the other legal aid organization, typically, even if there's an attorney on the other side, we kind of like specialize in landlord-tenant law. We often know the law better than the landlord's attorney who probably just dabbles and like mostly does something else. So we have a pretty good record of helping people out in court. Whereas if there's no attorney on the other, on the tenant side and the landlord is, is represented, then it's, you know, things are really difficult. Occasionally you see somebody who, you know, is really sort of like savvy about telling their story to the judge and you have a good judge. Like it, it can happen. People can successfully represent themselves, but it's, it's the exception and not the rule. How can the general public help? How can a citizen who's concerned, what can they do? So right now, the federal moratorium is in a pretty precarious place because its last iteration almost got struck down by the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, in late June. And it was a five to four opinion in favor of upholding it. And the deciding... Justice was Justice Kavanaugh. And he said, I don't think that the CDC really has authority to do this. I think that Congress needs to act, but I'm not going to strike it down because it's going to be over by the end of July, he said, in his concurring opinion. So, I mean, I think really Congress needs to act to get lasting protection. I think communicating with your congressperson, with your senator, about enacting legislation for a federal eviction moratorium that parallels the current CDC moratorium is something that a citizen can do. I think that, you know, there are organizations like The Haven that help people in bad straits. You know, they provide money for security deposits so people can find housing and stuff like that. Local organizations, they do really good work. If you are in a place to give, I think they're a really good organization to give to. One last thing, finally, how people can get in touch with you for more information. 
So Legal Aid Justice Center, Charlottesville office, uh, the intake line is 434-973-0553. Thank you so much for your great information and for coming in. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. All right, back to the interviews. Next up is City Councilor Michael Payne, who sat down with Assistant Producer Corey Harris. Can you please introduce yourself and talk about your goals during your time on the council? Sure. Uh, My name is Michael Payne, a Charlottesville City Councilor. You know, running one of the major goals was definitely affordable housing and looking at that in a holistic way in terms of all the different things we need to do to try to address the affordable housing crisis here in Charlottesville and more broadly try to do what we can to address economic inequality, which like many cities across the country is really growing and accelerating here and seeing what we can do to confront that head on. Um, And that's still the priority, but, you know, adding the complexity to that is the recovery from the pandemic and the economic impact that that's had, which has really just accelerated all these pre-existing trends and and just created even more of a challenge in terms of how we're going to grapple with these issues. So what are the, uh, some of the initiatives specifically that were enacted to combat these issues? So I think one of the major ones is the continued investment in resident led redevelopment and expansion of public housing, um, investment in the redevelopment of friendship court, another resident led process, the adoption of our affordable housing strategy, Um, as well as a comprehensive rewrite of the city's zoning ordinance, um, which is still underway. And when it comes to some of the specific pandemic things, we've been able to use a lot of uh, stimulus money from the federal government to uh, invest in things, utility relief, um, emergency bill relief, um, substantial investment in rental relief, um, and of course recently investment in Uh, an eviction prevention program, which we're hoping can be a first step to grow to be something more permanent to address, um, you know, the problems of evictions in Charlottesville, which uh, are always an issue, but, um, you know, with eviction moratoriums at some point ending and the backlog of rents that are due uh, is a much bigger issue than it has been even, you know, two years ago. I'm curious as to this issue of the backlog of rent. How is, what are the proposals out there to deal with that? Because obviously many of these people, I assume, were barely paying rent before the pandemic. Right. The major initiative there, I think, is money for rental relief, um, which was in multiple stimulus bills that Congress passed. And last round of money that was dispersed Um, locally through our planning district commission. Now that's being dispersed to the state, but that's the money that will clear up people's backlog of rent. Now, the problem there is particularly now that the state is administering it rather than the planning district commission, it's even more of a sort of drawn out process. And, um, you know, it may be difficult 
to navigate. It's a lot of paperwork, a lot of things you need to document. And even if you have all your paperwork and you've documented everything, the time between when you submit it and when you will get that money could pose an issue. So one of the things we've done is use a local pot of money to provide rental relief for the interim between when people will need that rental relief and when they're actually going to have access to it to sort of cover any gap that may exist. Um, and it is a lot of money and it's, it's a clear application process. But uh, again, you know, the problem there is really the, the timeliness of when people are actually going to realistically have access to it. Mm-hmm. How did you all come to partner with the Legal Aid Justice Center for this program? The issue of evictions, you know, has been one that's been discussed for a while, again, even pre-pandemic. And actually, the, the origins of this conversation started with going through our budget cycle this year. We saw one of the things in the initial draft budget proposal was $300,000 for new mobile data terminals for the police department and sort of looking at, okay, what would it look like if we had that pot of money and invested it somewhere else? Because that as a new expenditure wasn't um, necessarily as vital as some of the other things we were looking at. So it began with actually looking at that and then being, you know, what if we put that 300000 into a position for eviction prevention? And from there, the original idea when it was just being brainstormed was to have a city staff position do it. But as it was discussed, um, conversations with legal aid opened up and it became clear that they were probably going to be better able to administer it. There were going to be fewer conflicts of interest and things like that. Um, and they would be in a position to do it effectively. And then ultimately they gave us a proposal and then we funded that with $300,000, which ended up coming technically from the stimulus bill. And that original 300,000 we discussed went to um, some other initiatives, including boosting funding for the police civilian review board and um, a climate action planner um, and some other things, but that's how it came about. And, you know, one of the big things is we've made an investment in Charlottesville. It'll be really important for Albemarle County to make an investment as well to help make it more regional and more robust. Um, and the big thing is, is, you know, we definitely acknowledge that, um, you know, this is a big first step. Uh, it's something new. It's something that's going to be able to help a lot of people, but it is still just a first step. And the big thing is how can we look at this as something which we can grow and have become more permanent and not view this as sort of, we made this investment, it's done. Like this is just the beginning. Right. As they say, it's a marathon, (laughs) not a race. Why do you think legal representation is so important for people facing eviction? Yeah, I think it's hugely important because I think certainly pre-pandemic, and I think this will be accelerated as the eviction moratoriums ended, a lot of people who are facing eviction proceedings may not be fully aware of what their full legal rights are, or their landlord uh, may have not followed the letter of the law or may be um, trying to unlawfully evict them. And I think there's a lot of families who, if they simply had legal representation, would be able to stay in their house um, and would know and have an advocate advocating for what their full legal rights are. And, you know, for a lot of families, you know, period, not even just facing eviction, um, you know, being able to find and afford a lawyer, particularly on short notice, may just not be feasible at all. Um, And so it's been a big movement around the country to try to fight for right, guaranteed right to counsel 
So in eviction cases, the same way you have a public defender, you have some representation in your case. And so that really spurred this. And we're not at a full right to counsel here locally yet. But I think, at least for me, and I think many others, that's the long term goal. And that's really, you know, I think the clear need for it. Are there any other programs that you and the council are looking in to grow and improve the amount of affordable housing? And what are the resources available to low income residents? There's a lot of pandemic-specific stuff. A lot of money has gone to our Department of Human Services, um, the Pathways Fund, which provides um, relief for emergency bills or other immediate necessities for families. And the, the Pathways Fund had been completely depleted because so many people had needed resources, and that was uh, invested in again. And the big goal is, again, to have that um, at a minimum funded between now and when rent relief money becomes available. So that's been huge. We've made a lot of investments in food security and supporting delivering meals throughout the pandemic to families and partnering with our school system and cultivate Charlottesville to try to directly confront food insecurity, um, which rose during the pandemic. Um, A lot of investments in homelessness prevention and boosting homelessness services. Again, not just throughout the pandemic, but more permanently. A lot of big investments, I think, are to come. You know, earlier this year, we adopted our affordable housing strategy, which is, you know, filled with dozens and dozens of different policies. It calls for $10 million a year of investment in affordable housing. But it's one thing to adopt it. It's another thing to begin to implement it fully. And so I think a big challenge for us will be, okay, how do we ensure this isn't just words on a paper and we're turning this strategy and these investments into reality? Um, but that will include a lot of different things, down payment assistance, support for uh, first-time homeowners, investment in public housing redevelopment, uh, preserving the affordability and low-income housing tax credit properties, um, and you know a dozen other different things. Well, that will be huge. And I think there's also a lot of supports available at the state level. Again, the big one being when it comes to housing, that rent relief program, which again is now administered through the state um, and people can apply for that. But that is a substantial pool of money that can um, will really be make or break for a lot of people. It was last time around when we dispersed it more locally. I mean, it was really a, a lifeline and a lifesaver for a lot of people. So really encourage everyone to... Uh, look into it, spread the word, um, and and make people aware that that resource is available. I was wondering, as you spoke, um, those are great initiatives. I was wondering, has there been any local pushback, people who were critical of these initiatives, and what were their complaints? Yeah, I think, you know, some. I think the biggest challenge we face locally, at least being on council, is having to confront the reality that we have an enormous amount of needs in our community, but our budget is only so big. Unlike the federal government, you know, we can't run a deficit. So you got to choose your priorities. And, um, you know, there are definitely people saying, you know, you should have invested more in business support or economic recovery for businesses. And I don't want to pretend like that's not a real need. I mean, we lost a lot of small businesses. It was particularly for our small businesses, brutal. Um, But again, when you just confront the reality of our budget limitations, I think you have to put food security, housing security, you know, your basic necessities as your top priority for what you're going to invest in. Um, And so, 
you know, there's always some of that kind of pushback of like, you know, well, you're saying that this investment isn't important. You know, we're not saying that. We're just saying we got to put this ahead. And some of the housing stuff we've worked on, you know, particularly like uh, the land use map rezoning, you know, there's been some opposition to it for sure, as well as some opposition to, you know, the level of investment in affordable housing that's been proposed as, you know, being too much of the budget. But again, you know, I think when you look at the reality of our affordable housing crisis here locally, um, you know, there's going to be some pretty big changes needed. And even with the investments that have been proposed, you know, they will make a huge positive impact, but it probably still will not be enough. You know, we'll really need support from the state and federal government to really strike at the roots of these issues, um, even if we can move the needle in a positive direction here locally. Right. Do you have any idea of how many people are affected, how many families are affected by this locally? Yeah, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but I know regionally through our planning district commission, you know, there were well over a thousand individuals who had accessed uh, rental relief. I know that uh, Charlottesville DSA and, and numerous other groups have been, you know, in front of courthouses throughout the pandemic, communicating with and providing information about resources available uh, to people who may potentially be facing eviction. And they compiled a list of a lot of individuals who could potentially be facing eviction. So I can't remember the exact number, but it is it is a sizable amount, and it's certainly a very sizable amount, who have accessed the rental and mortgage relief programs. And that's been several million dollars that's been dispersed. And those programs were depleted. So, you know, even, even with that, you know, several million was dispersed, but uh, it was much bigger need than even that. I'm just curious in your um, news consumption, watching things going on in the world, have you noticed how other governments have dealt with the pandemic and have you taken note of certain things that might or could have been applied or you wish had been applied here? Yeah, I think we've definitely looked at what a lot of other cities in, in, in the U.S. have done. And by and large, I think I'm proud of what our response has been in terms of a local government here. Um, when I look at a lot of other localities around Virginia and look at, um, for example, just what they used their stimulus money on, you know, much more the norm was economic development and recovery for businesses, even using it for more long-term infrastructure projects, um, whereas we really prioritize putting that money into community initiatives. Again, food security, rental relief, the Pathways Fund, tried to look at are there ways we can start new initiatives, for example, like a mobile mental health unit that was uh, something proposed and funded, the eviction prevention program. And in, in investments to not only need emergency needs, but with an eye to what investments could there potentially be to address immediate community needs that could also be a seed of a more permanent program that can grow over time. So when I look at a lot of other localities around Virginia, I think they, you know, they, they took a different approach. Certainly at, you know, at a national level, you know, I think there could have been more relief provided directly to individuals, um, without, you know, some of the corporate bailouts that were included in some of that legislation. And in addition to use it as an opportunity to directly address long-standing issues that the pandemic was only accelerating and look at, you know, what would it mean to address the pandemic by looking at 
issues in our healthcare system and the need for Medicare for all and universal access to healthcare, um, and even just preventative medicine through that. Um, look at, you know, with the rise of food insecurity, rather than purely stimulus checks, which were huge for a lot of people, um, but how could we have also looked at issues in terms of our food system, the SNAP program, um, what's driving food insecurity as an endemic issue in the country, and, and those kind of things. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, 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 been, it's certainly been an enormous challenge locally in across the world. And obviously, you know, it's impossible to say that the U.S. did everything right. Right. Yeah, you're right. And it's, it's a once-in-a-century pandemic, so there's going to be some opportunities missed, some mistakes made, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, that's good. Well, finally, um, what can the general public do to help locally? Yeah, I think a small immediate thing is just, um, you know, communicating with your local governments and whether it be Charlottesville, Albemarle, you know, other surrounding localities to prioritize investments in, in housing and immediate community needs. Um, again, we're still hoping that Albemarle County will follow our lead and invest in eviction prevention to help boost that program. Get involved with local organizations working on these issues. Um, Charlottesville DSA has been doing a lot of work on eviction prevention. Cultivate Charlottesville, which has done you know a ton of work on uh, food insecurity and food justice throughout the pandemic. Get involved with organizations like that. And if you're able to donate to some of these organizations and again, uh, volunteer with them. Uh, and, and if you're able to donate to local shelters, food banks, et cetera, because um, you know, the need existed before the pandemic, it's going to exist after the pandemic, but it's certainly very real uh, right now. Well, great. That's all for today. Thank you very much for your time. Definitely. Thank you. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producer this week is Corey Harris. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard. <laughs> <laughs>